Hi, and welcome to School of Sports. This is a podcast produced by the Center for Sports Communication at Marist College, where we have a regular series of conversations with the people shaping sports media and PR. This is episode three, the Pablo Torre edition. This is also a slightly different episode because we had Pablo come to campus recently. The rising ESPN star, who will have his own show with Bomani Jones soon, talked to the students at length about his career and where he sees the industry going. So we'll be playing his conversation at Marist College. With me now is Chris Hupper, a senior here at Marist, who helped put on the event. We'll pick it up after Pablo talked us through a gif of his wedding. In it, he reenacted a dance scene from The Wolf of Wall Street with Tony Reale, Dan Lebetard, and Tony Kornheiser. You're the son of a urologist and a dermatologist from the Philippines. Yes. How do you trace that journey from there to, well, not Marist today so much as an, an up-and-coming career at ESPN? Yeah, shockingly, being the son of a urologist does not serve as a truly great icebreaker with athletes who, like, you know, have questions about their urinary tracts. Like, that's not really a thing for, uh, for, <laughs> for sports reporting. But I'm a first-generation American, born and raised in New York City, and uh, my parents are doctors, and, and I was always going to become a doctor. My Halloween costume as a child was scrubs, my dad's old scrubs. Um, and then when doctor, because I'm not a math and science person, it turns out, um, fell by the wayside, I was going to be a lawyer. And I took the LSAT after college. Is anyone here trying to do that? One, One sad hand <laughs> comes up from the third row. Um, good luck. Um, but after that, I took the LSAT and uh, didn't get the score I wanted and realized, wait a minute, I can therefore spend a year after college doing something that I wanted to do, but never really because I came from a academically rigorous upbringing, uh, never really considered a real option. And so I went to Sports Illustrated for, well, what ended up being five years. I had been an intern writing for the student newspaper. Um, so after senior year, ended up starting as a fact checker at Sports Illustrated with the magazine. And I thank God so, as often as I can, that I'm not a lawyer. Right. Um, the stories that I get to share with my friends um, while they are in their cubicles is, uh, is a great source of joy for me. And I think about how much I stressed about school. This is, again, a terrible message to give to college students. <laughs> but I stress so much about about grades and the LSAT and, and trying to get into some pipeline for yeah. a nice, well-paying job that I really stumbled backwards into one of the most, like, fraudulent jobs there is. <laughs> like, this is not really work, right. but somehow I get to mold young minds while doing it. So Sports Illustrated was supposed to just be a goof-off that you do for a while before you went and did something serious. I took the LSAT actually a second time the day before I started at Sports Illustrated and figured after a year, yeah. I would be out. Um, but no, I did a, my first story for Sports Illustrated magazine was about how and why athletes go broke, which became a 30 for 30 documentary years later. Uh, but that really convinced me that, wait a minute, if I put... 
time into reporting foremost and uh, and really kind of like in my free time while I wasn't fact checking I was I was trying to talk to athletes about how they lost their fortunes and why and sort of assemble this kind of typology of what goes wrong um, I realized that I was enjoying it right. um, even if the subject was sometimes kind of morbid right um, but it led to some great conversations I mean Tori Hunter baseball player amazing defensive center fielder uh, not so good defensively with his finances. <laughs> I remember one story was that he got conned into investing in inflatable furniture. Or sorry, no, it was inflatable furniture rafts. So this was like... Right, he's for like in your pool. Floodwater. So he's from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Um, and apparently a thing he had been convinced was... And not for your pool. If you put inflatable like rafts underneath your couch, if it flooded, you could inflate <laughs> okay. the raft and your furniture would kind of float merrily into the future with you. And, and this business did not take off. Did not take off. So don't invest in that. It's my second lesson of the day after Watch the Wolf of Wall Street. Yes. <laughs> well, before we, before we get back to that, I wanted to ask you about your – you went to Harvard undergrad. Yes. I wanted to ask you about your thesis, which was titled Sympathy for the Devil, Child Homicide, Victim Characteristics, and the Sentencing Preference of the American Conscience. Yeah. Which was a 114-page thesis. Yeah. Doesn't come up much when I'm interviewing, like, Mike Tyson. Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> which is another amazing thing. Interviewing Mike Tyson, by the way. I remember I was in his, this is going to turn into story time, by the way, but I was, I was in Mike Tyson's house in Henderson, Nevada, and uh, I just remember, again, in, in my attempt to keep perspective on where my life had, had brought me, right. uh, I remember that Mike Tyson was, was recounting to me his time serving as a John, no, sorry, as a pimp. Okay. I don't want to cast aspersions on his free time elsewhere. But right. as a pimp in Las Vegas when he was bigger, fatter Mike Tyson and really down on his luck. Right. And he was storytelling as Mike Tyson tends to do. And he picked me up and pointed at me and said, all right, let's pretend you're the prostitute and I'm the pimp. <laughs> and he began to reenact one of the lowest moments of his life in which he burst into a, into a John's hotel room yeah. and demanded to collect money. And I thought to myself, A, I don't know if a law degree would actually help me here or not. <laughs> but B, I, I need to preserve this audio because I don't know how I wound up doing this professionally. Right. Um, so that's like the extreme end of the spectrum, of course. Right. Um, but to go back to my thesis, yeah, it, it's, it's you guys don't want to hear about my in-depth, nuanced thoughts about the American criminal justice system. Unless by a round of applause you do. That yeah. uh, so uh, that, that guy clapped. That was one. But thank you. I have a PDF that's 114 pages to send you later. Um, <laughs> but no, it, it actually one of the things that it did it did instill in me was you know research, research, and being rigorous about things. And yeah. one of the things that I, I tell everybody that I that I can when it comes to how to do anything like what I or any of these people do is start with the foundation of reporting, research, and writing. Um, and shockingly, the ability to dive into documents, the ability to research things, 
on LexisNexis, all of that is super helpful when it comes to the nitty-gritty of, right. of actual journalism. Right. That was a roundabout way of me saying that you were a sociology major and that you just kind of tumbled into this. Yes, yes. No, I was, I was really putting my time in the student newspaper in college. And I was doing things like writing a column where I invited uh, Ron Artest to be class day speaker. He did not accept. <laughs> but yeah. It was, it was a valiant attempt. But I, I think one of your big breaks at SI was when Jeremy Lin kind of burst through, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I was, I have the foremost privilege of being, I think, the number one barnacle on Jeremy Lin's leg. <laughs> like, I was somebody who pitched a story about Jeremy Lin when he was a senior at Harvard. And I had pitched this story to Sports Illustrated because Asian-American college basketball player does great was something right. that intrigued me. There was a story about the Harvard program hiring Tommy Amaker, being this guy who was engineering a real push into real college athletics. Um, I had been a senior when he was a freshman. And so I knew of him. Right. Um, and so that story got accepted, wrote that. I remember playing Xbox with him in his dorm at Harvard, which was a thing that I did not think would pay dividends years later <laughs> when I was suddenly like the only person with the contact information for the Lynn family, which was something that every tabloid in New York was hunting for. Right. But it so, was... So that was before he was a sensation. You, you were just hanging yes, out with him. Yes, yes. Yeah. And that was in 2010. And so 2012... <laughs> I mean, from my perspective, I am an Asian-American dude who went to Harvard, who had interviewed this kid, and grew up a Knicks fan. Right. And so for this to converge, it, it's one of those things that makes you feel like, yeah, maybe we are living in a computer simulation. <laughs> and so it was incredibly uh, rewarding for me. I got two Sports Illustrated cover stories out of it, which is absurd. But until now, until this month, it remains, I think, the most joyous experience for Knicks fans in like the last, you know, now almost 20 years. Until, of course, yeah, Chris Dapps Porzingis breaks his leg, which... Any day now. Any day now. He missed last night's game, and that's always encouraging. So how'd you wind up going from SI to ESPN? And so, going from being a full-time writer to being on TV? Yeah, so I was a... So ESPN hired me five years ago, but my first television experience was when I was at Sports Illustrated in 2008. And when you work at any of these media companies in New York, one of the things that's funny about TV is these cable news channels, which are very close to where the Sports Illustrated offices used to be, would need people to plug in for the news cycle. So one example is the Olympics. 2008, Beijing Olympics. Michael Phelps is the biggest story on the planet. Right. Everybody at Sports Illustrated at the time who knows anything about Michael Phelps or swimming or the Olympics is in Beijing. So it's really hard to wake up someone who is across the world to do some hit, um, a hit being an appearance on cable news. Right. Um, but we got a call, and the first television appearance I ever did was on The O'Reilly Factor <laughs> with Bill O'Reilly. Rest in peace rest, to the show, not rest, 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 rest in peace. Um, yeah. Uh, so that was the first thing, and I remember cramming, like studying for this thing. I was, much like you guys do, like frantically Wikipediaing like biographical facts about Michael Phelps, um, learning about swimming, learning about the Olympics. And I'm at this point, I'm, I'm not an Olympics expert, but this is sort of the thing you get thrown into. And right. 
I'm not going to say no. My employer wants me to do this. And I realize as I walk into the studio and I sit across from this cinematically intimidating man that I'm just going to be lectured about Bill O'Reilly's high school swimming career by Bill O'Reilly. <laughs> Bill O'Reilly swam, apparently. He grew up in Long Island, huge swimmer, had many thoughts about what made Michael Phelps great. He also went to college here. Did he really? Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, carry on. <laughs> I feel like a chill just ran through the room and up my spine. It's nuts. Say what you want. Rick Smiths and Bill, and Bill O'Reilly. That's, 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 <laughs> that's a real rainbow coalition that I can appreciate. Um, but no, it was, it was one of those lessons that told me, A, when it comes to being on camera in any sense, because I then watched the clip back later, and I realized... There are a lot of two shots here, which is to say two people on camera at the same time. And it was Bill O'Reilly being himself yes, and me being myself, which is to say being very meek and listening to Bill O'Reilly with a very terrified look on my face. So when you watch like First Take or any of these shows now, I encourage you as a matter of, of journalistic education to pay attention to the faces of these people when they are not speaking. <laughs> because they emote, they are actively listening, right. and not until you find yourself looking like this and like blinking a lot into a camera that you don't realize is watching you do you realize, oh yeah, there is a bit of theater. Like I'm doing right now. A absolutely. Yeah. You're doing, I'll give you like a B plus right now. I'll take it. Uh, but no, there's, there's a real theater and performance to being on camera. And so from there, it sort of felt like if you throw me into a deep pool, I'm at the very least going to float. Um, and so, yeah, from then on, they trusted me enough to go on other channels. And so long story short, five years ago, ESPN came to me and wanted to hire me as a writer and not for TV. Right. But I had the intention from the beginning that I think I can do this. And it was sort of my goal in my attempt to, like, future-proof my career, my livelihood, um, to prepare for whatever was coming next with the great disruption that's come to the media writ large in our world. Yeah. Um, that being on camera and being able to do that was was important. So so that was kind of a different sort of law school where it was just something to fall back on just in case. Yeah, it was, it was the thing of it seems like getting to learn how to do different things is going to be really helpful. And that sounds trite, but it is actionable information. And so for me, that meant getting on the sports reporters, which is the first TV I ever did for ESPN. Um, and again... More lessons learned, like, you know, iron your shirt. <laughs> that, was, that would have been helpful. Yeah. Um, That's why I'm wearing a jacket. Yeah, right. Uh, but then I ended up being on Around the Horn because Tony Reale, the aforementioned Italian guy grinding in that video, uh, was, uh, was following me on Twitter and, and sort of realized from that, from social media, that I had a voice and a point of view and a sense of humor and that I could be of service to his show. And so that's another lesson, right? Social media is a terrifying, terrifying thing. I don't know if it's good for any of us as a species, but <laughs> it absolutely helped me get to where I am today for reasons both superficial and substantive. Um, and, uh, and I would be very, very remiss and hypocritical to acknowledge that in a world in which we are personalities right. um, and we have to express thoughts beyond just what we report and write about, that that was super helpful in terms of exposure. And... Uh, and yeah, that's something that 
I think I was one of the first wave of people to kind of, Bomani Jones, my co-host of this TV show forthcoming next year, was another guy who really used technology and social media to his advantage in terms of being a commodity, being a person who maybe had an authority based on their cleverness, based on whatever else um, that was worth listening to. So you kind of bounced between shows you did and, and still do around the horn and part in the interruption and sports reporters, rest in peace. Rest in peace, yes. Uh, sports Nation, highly questionable, and Olbermann, yeah. rest in peace. Yeah. How, what was that like, sort of doing so many shows, sort of rotating between them and, and maybe not having as much of a fixed home? Yeah, the fill-in life is not a bad one. So it turns out that all these fancy TV hosts you may watch on sports television take vacations. And when they take vacation, they got to put another warm body in the seat. Right. And my body was reasonably warm. Uh, and so filling in for any of these people was a tremendous like honor, A, another intimidating learning experience, B. But it also meant that they were trusting me to do things beyond my immediately obvious skill set. Right. So filling in for Keith Olbermann and doing a monologue when he had this ESPN show, which, again, is, is now dearly departed, um, that was insane. It was insane for me to, to, to even believe that that was something that I would reasonably expect to be doing. Um, but I think that the ability to host, it's another facet of this job that has ended up you know, being my full-time job as of 2018, really. Um, but I loved it, man, because you got to do, you got to get an education. Right. In, in not just the business as like, oh, this is how this works from a makeup to set to getting makeup wiped off of you kind of sequence of events. Right. But, you know, like, can you do a monologue? Can you have a conversation with someone on camera? Can you listen to a voice in your ear that is your producer while listening to four other voices in your ear, which are four panelists on Around the Horn, while the researcher is also in your ear and you are also scoring points? Right. For all these people who are speaking to you. When you're hosting. Yeah. Which is, yeah, when you're hosting around the horn, which is like being, you know, a, a weird, like, Chuck E. Cheese fighter pilot. When you're just kind of, like, <laughs> listening to Woody Page and trying to figure out, is he saying anything reasonable right now? And then kind of making it seem like you are listening. So there's a lot of also pretending that you're listening. By the way, another skill. Like, never let on that you're ignoring the questions I'm, I'm being asked. Right which yeah. is Right. So... But yeah, all, all of that is is like, you know, kind of tapping your head and rubbing your belly, that kind of thing. Right. So it's all keeping your muscles, um, you know, keeping them from being atrophied by, by inaction. So all that is to say that, yeah, it's the stuff that I really found that I love to do. And so I'll do PTI tomorrow, for instance. I'll shout out Marist if you guys, you know, yeah. don't. Yeah. You got, yes. That's the cheapest way to get applause. By the way. How can I win the favor of this room? I'm going to shout out all of you. It, it uh, didn't stop you. No, that's the other lesson. Be as cheap and as transparent about currying favor with college students as you can. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's fun, man. It's it's so once you get over the stage fright and you get into a comfort zone of realizing that these people are. And by the way, this is true for anybody in this business. Like. Once you meet them and talk to them and sort of dig into where they came from and their their rise to wherever they got, it's demystifying. Right. Like, talking to Tony Kornheiser was once, again, an absurd thing to contemplate because I had been watching him from my living room, and now I was suddenly in this magical box called the television with him. And now he's twerking at your And wedding. now he's twerking at my wedding. So, so, which is, you know, again, just wonderful, and not a thing that law school would have given me. Yeah. Um, 
but it's but it's it's it becomes a comfort zone sort of thing um and learning from them it's you know like i i to break it down even more like elementally to what i learn i i, I learn from like and this is another lesson like figure out who you like and respect and admire whether it's writers um whether it's on camera people and just try and think and figure out what they do well that you're impressed by yeah because i watch i'll take the example of tony kornheiser he is a guy where you throw him anything right and he will figure out a way to either alley-oop it right or give it back to you and he keeps the conversation moving and and that's one of those things where dead air you know is one of the more awkward things that you can yeah. be guilty of and if you have a guy who has the sensibility of a point guard and can keep the ball moving and you trust to both throw passes to you and and finish them himself I, I think about that and I marvel at that still if we could take a quick detour you mentioned your lifetime Knicks fandom are yeah. those Celtic socks these are these are in fact if you can see the the leaf here these are uh, New York City Parks and oh, Recreation socks. I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean that. <laughs> so how dare you? <laughs> I've defamed your character. Here. I didn't mean to. Um, you mentioned your show coming up with Bomani. What's, yeah. what's the concept? When can we expect to see it? And what are the plans? Yeah, spring 2018. Uh, I don't know of kids these days. And by the way, thank you for like sitting on the floor and stuff and, and standing in that order, you guys are putting in more work than they are, but <laughs> I respect both of you nonetheless. Um, there's, there's two seats right here if anybody wants to hop in. Anyway. <laughs> Don't be ashamed. Do not be ashamed. Right here. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if kids these days like even have television have cable TV right. subscriptions, but we will be hosting a linear television show, which is to say it'll be on ESPN1. It'll be from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern on weekdays, starting in spring of 2018. Are you guys up by then, by noon? <laughs> Just try to be. Just try. I didn't have any classes before 10 a.m. in college, so maybe that's early for you guys, but I considered myself fairly delinquent for that reason, so I get it. Um, but yeah, have lunch. Buy a subscription to, like, Verizon or something and come support me. Uh, there you go. But no, it'll be a talk show. We'll figure out, like, ways to have fun. You know, one of the things that I want, and I think Bomani and I both have this gear where we are in a, in a time when, I used to say this before 2017, 16, and now it's really just all up in our faces, but I used to say that sports is America's town hall. It's where we get to hash out issues of, of race, of politics, of all these really serious things uh, under the kind of guise that because it's sports, we're going to get people to the table who we otherwise would not be able to really have dialogue with. Right. I used to say that before we became an incredibly polarized and terrifying place to really have any sort of reasonable discussion. But the upside is that sports is absolutely where that stuff is happening for reasons that are both politically intentional, like this is a real convenient place to garner support and or the opposite of support. Right. Uh, but it's also a place where we are forced to reckon with an interesting like matrix of, of, of social issues, you know? And we go from Colin Kaepernick on down, it's like 
not only is it America's town hall, it is America's furious and angry town hall, and that is so obvious to anybody that the metaphor seems like self-evident. So the summer, to summarize there, the show will not be sticking to sports. The show will not be sticking to sports, but one of the things that I am like cautious of is, is knowing when it's appropriate to serve vegetables to people. And also, like, how to get those vegetables real delicious. Right. Like, I'm going to melt some cheese on the broccoli for you. You know, I'm going to try Still and, broccoli, though. Still some broccoli, but I want you to enjoy that broccoli. Um, but also, I also want people to ultimately realize that, and this is sort of the ethos of, of my life in this job, it's if we're not enjoying ourselves and having fun, and, and coming from, again, these shows, PTI, Around the Horn, Highly Questionable. Highly Questionable has Dan Levitard's dad <laughs> right in the middle. The most irreplaceable person on, on ESPN. On television. In fact, we, we tried to figure out, like, because Dan and Poppy were out when I was co-hosting with Bomani recently. Uh, highly Questionable. And we tried to figure out how can we possibly, possibly replace Poppy. And so the guy who we thought of and agreed to do it but then he got sick and couldn't do it and that sickness turned out to be borne out by the news cycle was rick flair <laughs> and that would have been amazing yeah. but he got a 30 for 30 documentary that just premiered out of espn so he's fine you needed a uh, surrogate poppy we just needed somebody who was absurd in right. all of the ways that make you endearing and also like an alien uh and and anyway so the point being Coming from a show where you have Poppy Lebetard as the center of the camera. Yes. And coming from a show that has, like, us watching and reviewing videos where, like, a dude is wearing a diaper and ants are crawling all over his groin. Right. Right. And coming from a show where you have points being assigned to people for opinions that vary between, again, vegetably and very dessert-like. And coming from a show like PTI where you have... Uh, or you had until Tony Reale left, uh, a stat boy who was there to kind of shame you and correct you and never took itself too seriously, I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that if sports as an institution are not fundamentally enjoyable and fun, then we're really failing ourselves. Um, and so I want to give a good mix of this is what you need to know today and this is what I hope you will enjoy being entertained by. Last thing I want to ask before we open it up to the floor for questions so I can get cooking on this. Um, you're the rare Asian-American in sports media. Why do you think that is, and how can we be better at that? Well, it's funny because I am named Pablo Torre. Yes. And so a That's lot of my... That's what the poster says. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was correct. And this is the immigration police coming out. Uh... <laughs> uh it, it's funny because I, I operate in a space where people on Twitter, like, and, and again, Twitter is like this, it's this inbox that has fueled my career on the one hand, but on the other hand, like, you know, we used to, I don't know, if, again, I don't know if you guys <laughs> were telling each other this, but in our business, like, we used to say, don't read the comments. Right. At the bottom of these articles, it's like, don't read the comments. The comments are a sewer. Right. And then it comes to be that we are all commenters exclusively reading comments, right. which is social media. Yeah. And so I get a sense of how people perceive me. 
And a lot of it is, why is this Chinese guy with a Mexican name lecturing me about sports? Which is inherently kind of funny. Um, I'm Filipino-American for the Spanish colonization of the Philippines, Catholic country, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Spanish names. Spanish names, Asian faces. Um, but but it, it came to be obvious to me that, and this is sort of a grander observation about race that I've come to grapple with and realize, which only partially answers your question, but I'll get to answering it after it. Uh, it's not up to me what I am, right? Like the idea of what I am is entirely in the eye of the beholder. Right. And, and it's just one of those funny things where how we treat each other is a matter of consequence. It's a matter of consequences by definition. So that's all to say that I am somebody who has gotten a greater appreciation for how much better our conversation around race, period, needs to be. In terms of figuring out the most basic things, definitions, who is what, um, what does it really mean to treat people differently? Why is it weird if, uh, I mean, this is, this is one of these real litmus tests in New York, for instance, right? Or even with, like, David Ortiz, right? right. Like, who gets to say the N-word? Right? And why? Wait a minute. Is he from the Dominican Republic? What does that mean? Right? Colorism. Why is a light-skinned person different from a dark-skinned person? This is all very, you know, this is a huge conversation that I've suddenly opened the door to. But anyway, the point being that... You can um, blame me. I blame you. Yeah. Uh, but that being an Asian-American dude who has the name Pablo Torre has really been an interesting laboratory for, like, processing not just representation in our industry, which is its own thing, but also... Yeah, like what we assume and how we, and how we talk about people and why. Um, there's another 114-page thesis forthcoming about that. <laughs> um, but no, in terms of Asian-American representation specifically, it's really shocking to me that I get a lot of positive feedback um, from people who are, like, saying thanks. And in my own weird, again, barnacle on Jeremy Lin's leg sort of a way, Right. It's one of those things that reminds me that representation is so essential to expectation. Mm. Like, if you don't see someone doing something that looks a certain way, you assume that that can't be done. And the amount of confidence that you get from seeing somebody who's even vaguely like you is so reassuring. Uh, and I remember a conversation I had with Jeremy Lin about this, where we had, we had a, a thought experiment. Like, if you were casting an Asian-American leading man to be like a superhero, like who would you even cast, right? right. It's a fun party trick. Ask your friends this sometime. <laughs> you'll get like Jackie Chan, but he's not Asian-American. Maybe Jeremy Lin. Maybe Jeremy Lin. Maybe me, which is terrifying. Like I'm somehow like also receiving votes in the thinnest category imaginable. Um, but no, it's, it's just a weird thing where, where how we perceive people, stereotypes of masculinity, about who can talk about sports, who will I listen talk to me about sports. Um, all of this, by the way, is even more insane when you consider the feedback that women in our profession get. Right. And this has been going on for decades. People who are so angry that women will talk to you about the sport that you love. About routes. About routes, right, in, in, the, in the parlance of, of Cam Newton. Um, but man, like I work with Jackie McMullen, who's a literal Hall of Famer in the Basketball Hall of Fame in Springfield, Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, and the idea that some might condescend to her about knowledge of anything 
like don't let that don't let your perceived rarity in a in a space in a business in an industry prevent you from preparing yourself to answer harder questions than others might get but also don't prevent that from you know from from letting you do what you want to do um, so in any tiny way that I am responsible for easing the anxiety of someone who wants to do this job I am profoundly uh, profoundly grateful that that's even a thing that I could help with. So Chris, you were there. You were a big part of it. What did you think of the event? And what did you think of the things Pablo had to say? I thought the event was fantastic. It was definitely one of the better events that we've put on here at the Center of Sportscom. And I thought most of it was Pablo Torre and how detailed he was with his answers, you would ask just a simple question, and he'd give you a 10, 15-minute answer. <laughs> He's a really bright guy. It's like it's yeah. clear that he thinks about this stuff like at an incredibly deep and cerebral level. Yeah, and I don't know if we've cut it in the uh, podcast or not, but one of the questions in the Q&A was about that Sports Illustrated boxing article that he yeah. had read, and it was one, he said it was one of the best pieces of writing he's ever had and he had to write about boxing for Sports Illustrated as well. One of the things that gets me excited, Chris, about his show is that in a lot of ways, Pablo is different from other sports writers and sports commentators. Uh, he's very different from all the other voices you hear on television because he thinks so much more deeply, it seems, um, and he can convey those thoughts that where I really hope that he and Bomani turn on a sh create a show that's that's just kind of is going to change the paradigm within the industry. Yeah. And what I like about Pablo Torre is he has the perfect mixture between sports and politics. Like they're on Sports Center, you got the people that are like too highlight driven, but at the same time, you have people that try to make everything into an off the field issue. Right. Where Pablo, he has that perfect mixture of he'll tell you what's on the field but then he'll tell you off the field as well. Now it's time for our Rick Smith's fun fact. As a refresher, Smith was a longtime NBA player and a one-time All-Star with the Indiana Pacers. The Duncan Dutchman is also Marist's most famous sporting alumnus, so we've adopted him as our mascot. Chris here is going to give you this episode's fact. Smith has a 21-year-old son called Derek. He's also super tall, but he's only 7'2" making him a full two inches shorter than his dad, who probably thinks he's a midget. He also plays college bas basketball at Valparaiso, where he's averaged a whole 3.4 points per game last season. Now it's time to end. Our producers today were Will Bjarnar and Matt Jutkowitz. Our editor was also Chris Hupper. Our researcher was Lawrence Lang. And for Chris Hupper, I'm Leander Sharlockens. Thanks for listening to School of Sports. <laughs>